Thank you, Summit family. You may be seated. Well, happy Thanksgiving. How many of you have already started listening to Christmas music? Why don't you raise your hand? All right, that's why we have churches like this one, because there is forgiveness even for heinous sins like that one, okay? Um, well, listen, speaking of Christmas, you may have already seen this on social media, and you may have already sent me an angry letter or two about it, but this year we are not going to be at the Durham Performing Arts Center for our Christmas services, not going to be at the DPAC. And I know that is a bit of a bummer. Trust me, there is nobody that is more upset about this in our church than the Greer children. We have had a, a small mutiny at my house about this issue. Uh, so I can assure you that they are as upset as you are. Uh, but I am excited to be able to tell you what we are going to be able to do in its place. There are multiple reasons why we weren't able to do the DPAC this year. I won't go into those right now, but let me tell you what we're going to do. This year, we are going to gather for Christmas services on one day, Sunday, Monday, December 22nd in four locations throughout the triangle. We're going to call it Christmas with the Summit. Four locations, three of them will be in English. Uh, downtown Durham, that's at the Carolina Theater where they typically meet. We'll be there, Capitol Hills campus, uh, our, uh, one of our broadcast locations, and then the Apex campus will be our places we do it in English. And then Summit in Espanol will be meeting there at the Briar Creek facility uh, to do a service there. Um, if you've been at Summit for any length of time, you know that this year we've been focusing, our emphasis has been who's your one. Uh, uh, where we are encouraging you to have one relationship in your life, at least one that you are building a relationship with and, and then doing whatever you can to point them to the hope you find in Jesus. Along with that, we've had what we called Bring Your One Sundays, where uh, we encourage you to bring that person to one of our services, because on that day, uh, we're hoping there is a particularly um, clear presentation of the gospel. Well, suffice it to say that that Sunday at one of those services will be a Bring Your One weekend, uh, Bring Your One Sunday, because we're going going to just present the beauty and the mystery uh, of Christmas there on those services. It will be very Deepak-esque. Even though we're not at the Deepak, it will be um, just like one of those services there. So I hope that you will reach out and bring that person. Um, uh, we know from experience that Christmas is one of those times in the year when people are unusually receptive People who normally wouldn't come to church with you are unusually receptive to coming with you on that day. Now, I know you got a few questions, like your first one is, what time are the services? The services at each of those, each of the English locations will be at 9, 11.30, 4, and 6.30. Uh, now you want to know when are tickets available? Tickets will be available to all of you, to the general public, on December 9th. December 9th, you need to get them at christmaswiththesummit.com, which makes you ask the question, wait, I'm going to need a ticket to come? Yes, you are, okay? Uh, they're free. They're free. They're always free. Um, we're, uh, we've, every year we've done Christmas, we've done them free. Uh, it's, we always say it's like salvation. doesn't cost you anything, but you have to RSVP. Uh, okay, so um, they are free for you, but you have to get one. You say, well, why would you have tickets for this? Well, based on um, the amount of people that come to these uh, things, you know, it's 16,000, 17,000 in years past. We're hoping with these different locations, we'll have even more uh, this year that in order to kind of keep some uh, you know, uh, keep it out of chaos, and, and that's it. We, we um, just give out tickets so that we can be able to plan and make sure that the services are evenly distributed. So on December 9th, you'll need to go and get enough tickets for you and the person that you want to uh, invite. Um, you say, well, um, how can I serve? Pastor J.D., that's my main question. Uh, great, I was waiting on you to ask that question. Um, if you sign up to serve, you can do it at Christmas with the Summit. 
Tickets.com. You can go um, at one of our locations and you can get early access to tickets, okay? So there's your little benefit. Uh, as always, Summit family, we tell you we need you to serve one and come to one. So plan on attending one, but also plan on serving one. It's a great gift that we're able to give to our community. For this and any other questions you got, ChristmasWithTheSummit.com. Again, if you sign up to serve, you can get access to tickets early, okay? All right, okay, you have been told. Here we go, 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, if you got your Bible this weekend. 2 Corinthians, let's just go to 2 Corinthians chapter 8, give you a little warning here in advance. This is not going to be a typical sermon where I work my way, as I prefer to do, through one passage of Scripture and just explain to you what it says and, and what it means. Um, I, instead, what I want to do today is I want to walk you through a tool that I have developed, um, developed a few years ago. It's really helped me in a personal struggle that I've had with my relationship to money. Uh, I will tell you as a very type A person, I like boxes to check. I like to know what the standard is. I want to know what's the A, what's the A plus, so that I can just, you tell me what to do and, and I can get there. And I just couldn't really figure out what the standard was when it came to giving, when it came to generosity. Um, and I want to know what that was. Uh, there, there, there seem to be, at least to me, there seem to be two extremes in the Christian world when it comes to um, the question of how Christians view their relationship with money. The first extreme is that basically God wants 10%, what we call the tithe. Um, it's, you know, the first 10% of what God gives to you. It's based on an Old Testament principle that the first 10% of whatever God gives you goes back to him. And Christians think, you know, that's like the God tax. And then once you have paid that, then basically you fulfilled your duty and you can do whatever you want with the other 90%. And after you pay that tax, then, then you're done. And God says, go and be blessed. In fact, some Christians would go so far as to say that giving that 10% is God's way of making you rich by multiplying the other 90% back to you. Uh, this whole generosity thing is really just God's faith investment scheme, and it's God's way of enriching you. This attitude, this extreme, friends, is not just wrong. I would say it's unchristian because it's turned God into your servant rather than making you his. That's one extreme. At the other end, the other extreme are those who constantly feel guilty about what they are giving or what they're not giving because they assume that as long as there are poor people in the world and as long as there are lost people who need to hear about Jesus, then God's only purpose for our money is to get the gospel to them. And whatever you're not giving is keeping somebody else from uh, a meal or keeping somebody else from hearing the gospel. John Wesley, the, um, uh, uh, the, the evangelist in the Great Awakening 300 years ago, uh, founder of the Wesleyan denomination, he very famously took down all the pictures on his wall because he said, I couldn't stand to look at them because they were the blood of the poor. Uh, because I knew that whatever I'd wasted on decoration for my little meager apartment was actually another orphan that I could have brought in from the cold. And I'm staring at these pictures and all I'm thinking about is, is the blood of the poor and the cries of the lost who need to hear about Jesus. And there are some Christians who feel like that. And it's, they feel like the, the message is, hey, whatever you're given, you should give more. And you should feel guilty about what you have. Or it's like if you're a little older, you might remember that really stirring scene in the movie Schindler's List where Liam Neeson, who is one of the greatest actors of our generation right behind Nicolas Cage, is playing Dr. Schindler. And, um, and at the end, you know, he's basically taken his fortune and he's used it to deliver Jews from being killed in the Holocaust. And at the end, he's, he's looking, he starts looking at his watch and he's like, this watch could have, it could have set two more Jews free. And he goes through everything in his possessions, just feeling guilt about how he didn't use those to, to, help, to help liberate certain Jews. And that's how certain Christians feel about their possessions. It's, they just look at it and like, well, whatever, 
whatever I have, I, I could have given that and why didn't I? And I just feel guilty about it. I've heard this described even by some as a wartime mentality of spending. Like, like, like you would spend if you were in the midst of a war. If you, in Long Beach, California, there's a floating museum. Maybe some of you have been to it. It's the Queen Mary. Uh, the Queen Mary was um, a luxury cruise liner, state-of-the-art cruise liner in the early 20th century that was for the richest of the rich. When World War II started, England retrofitted that, uh, that, that luxury ship so that it could, uh, it, could, it could ferry troops back and forth across the Atlantic. When it was a luxury liner, it accommodated 3,000 people with every possible convenience. In wartime, however, it was refitted to house 15,000 people. And rooms that once would hold one couple would now sleep eight different, eight soldiers. Uh, in fact, you can go into this museum and see it when it was a luxury liner and then see another section where what it looked like in wartime. John Piper says, wartime and peacetime demand different things. In war, you forego luxuries to provide resources for the battle. You melt down your silver spoons, if that's what it takes, to make bullets, right? That's what a wartime mentality is. And Piper says, obviously, we're in a war, right? Not with physical enemies, but we're in a war for the hearts and souls of people. So we should have that same mentality. Now, to be very clear to you, I find this position inspiring. And I think there's a lot of truth in it, as I will explain to you. But I think in the end, it's out of balance, at least if you take it all by itself, for a couple reasons. First, honestly, I don't know where you end this kind of thinking. I mean, in war, if the enemy was coming after my family, I would melt down all of my spoons, all of them, and eat with my hands if that meant that I would have bullets to defend my family. Or, or, or say one of my children had been kidnapped and was being sold into the slave trade, right? Any of you parents, I would give up my last meal. I would starve myself if it meant that my child could be fed and free. I would gladly do it. Is that what God expects me to do now that there are still lost people in the world that I just live in, in starvation? And, and is that the way that I'm supposed to live? 500 years ago, John Calvin acknowledged the never-ending trajectory of this type of thinking. Uh, he said, I actually updated a little bit of his language so it would make some more sense to us. If a man begins to doubt whether he may use linen for his sheets, like a fine cloth for his sheets, his shirt, his handkerchiefs, and napkins, well, he will afterward be uncertain also about cotton. If I can't use linen, maybe I, you know, should, we, well, then maybe the question whether I should give up napkins altogether. I said, if you downgrade from linen to cotton, I'll say, well, why do you need a napkin? All right? He goes on. If he decides that eating gourmet food is sinful, opting instead for only plain food, soon he must conclude that he could survive on beans and rice alone. Right? If he demurs that expensive wine, how can he settle for three buck chuck even? That's the part I updated. Okay? After all, after all, water's always cheaper. Water's always cheaper, and he must concede that filtered water is wrong if tap water is available. I mean, you, you kind of understand what he's, what he's getting at there? You, could, you, could, you, you can never really end this kind of thinking. Or, or, for example, like this. Um, I, I'd say most of you probably took a warm shower this morning. Do you really need a warm shower? Couldn't you save that money? Couldn't you have given up your hot water heater and uh, saved all the money on electricity or gas or however you, you fuel it so that you could help more orphans and missionaries? Like, really, you were so selfish you, you, your, your, your warm shower is so important to you that you're willing to starve an orphan so that you can bathe in the warm, you disgusting, overfed, gluttonous American? Is that, I mean, have you heard those kinds of messages? Whatever you got, you should feel guilty about it because you're pampered and you're holding it from somebody else. I just don't know where to end that kind of thinking, honestly. More importantly, even though I find this position to be out of sync with a number of places that the Bible teaches us about possessions, which is one I want to talk about today. After a lot of personal struggle, study on this, I've concluded 
And what the Bible does is it teaches us to view our possessions through a matrix, not the Keanu Reeves kind of matrix, but matrix like a set of principles. And by the way, with Nicolas Cage, Liam Neeson, Keanu Reeves completes the triumvirate of great actors in our generation, okay? Um, a matrix, a matrix, a set of principles that you're supposed to hold in tension. Now, here's the thing. Here's the key to today, okay? Any one of these principles, if taken by itself, will lead you out of balance, the Bible gives them all and says, here are the seven that you are supposed to live under when it comes to money, and you're going to have to develop wisdom, and you're going to have to develop a sensitivity to the Spirit in knowing how to apply these things. Now, I'm just going to tell you, I told you at the beginning, as a type A person, I'd rather have a rule. Just give me the percentage. Tell me what the silver star is. Tell me what the A plus is, and I'll go for it. The Bible just doesn't give you that when it comes to generosity. It gives you a set of principles and says, live in the tension of these. That's where wisdom is. So let me give them to you. I'm going to walk you through them and explain them. No, I call this the generosity matrix. Number one, number one, most importantly, Jesus's generosity toward us is the model for our generosity to other people. Jesus's generosity is the model for our own. This is what it means to live a gospel-centered life. I put this one first because it is the most important. All of a Christian's life. All of the Christian's life is supposed to be lived in response to the gospel. In 2 Corinthians 8, where Paul gives his most extensive instruction on generosity, he tells the Corinthian believers that ultimately they should think about how much Jesus has given up for them and respond accordingly to one another. 2 Corinthians 8, 9, he says, You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Though he was rich for your sake, he became poor so that you through his poverty might become rich. Now you should go and do for others what Jesus has done for you. After all, friends, family, Jesus did not merely tithe his blood, right? How much of Jesus's blood did he pour out for you? Not 10%, he poured out 100% of his blood for you. And that means our responsibility is not just to give our 10% back to God and then go on our self-serving way. Our responsibility is to offer 100% of our lives back to him and then to pour our lives and resources out recklessly for him and for others, just like he did for us. It's like I often ask you to consider, where would you be without Jesus? Where would you be had Jesus chosen to hang on to his stuff and not come to die for you? And I've told you the surprising answer is you would be at exactly the same place that millions of people are in the world without you. Because it is true that Jesus has died for everybody, but it's also true that Jesus' death does not benefit anybody until they hear about it. And the only way they hear about it is through your giving, your going, and your sacrificing. That's why Paul says in Colossians 1.24 that we, the church, are to fill up in our flesh, in our bodies, what is still lacking in regards to Christ's afflictions. What is still lacking in Christ's afflictions? I mean, I thought when Jesus was on the cross, he said, it is finished. And now Paul's saying there's something still lacking? What Paul meant, what, what, when Jesus said it is finished, he meant the full price for salvation has been paid. But what Paul is pointing to is it doesn't matter if the price has been paid if there's still people that haven't heard about it. And the way that they're going to hear about it is going to come through my wounds. It might be my wounds through persecution. It might be my wounds of sacrifice. But just like Jesus was wounded to purchase the gospel for us, you and I are wounded to proclaim and to spread the gospel. It's like Martin Luther said, it wouldn't matter if Jesus died a thousand times if nobody ever heard about it. And so what that means is that for the believer, 
when God prospers me financially, it's not simply so I can go on my way and, and, and go into my self-serving life. No, he prospers us, we say, not to increase our standard of living. God prospers us to increase our standard of giving. So he goes on in 2 Corinthians 9, Paul says that directly, God will multiply your seed. Talking about the money that you invest, he will multiply. Why does he multiply it? He multiplies it for sowing, greater sowing, so that you can increase the harvest of your righteousness. God multiplies you. When he multiplies you, he does it so that you can be even more Christ-like and bless more people through your sacrifice and your generosity. So hear me, okay? This is the most important of all the principles, but it's not the only principle. And if this principle is the only one that you recognize, even though it's the most important, I'm telling you, you're always going to feel guilty. Because face it, whatever you sacrifice for others is not going to compare really to what Jesus sacrificed for you. Whatever you give up is not going to be comparable to what Jesus gave up to purchase you, right? If you're still breathing, if you're still breathing this morning, you have not given up near as much as Jesus has. And even if you did give your life for somebody else, it still wouldn't be as much as Jesus poured out for you. Right? So it's one principle, but it's not the only one. So here's number two. A second biblical principle, God gives us richly all things to enjoy. That is a direct quote from 1 Timothy 6, 17, in which Paul reminds his readers, listen to this. Some of you have never really heard this in church, but God delights to take care of his children. As we saw last week, God created a world of abundance as a gift to his children because he's a God of abundance. The whole Bible just screams that. I told you that the Garden of Eden, most of us think of the Garden of Eden as a little postage stamp size garden like we have in our backyards, but that is not what the Garden of Eden was. The book of Genesis actually gives you the, the borders and the dimensions of the Garden of Eden. It was basically the size of Yellowstone National Park and probably a hundred times as beautiful. He created all that for two little naked people to run around in just all by themselves. That's a God of abundance. He just created this lavish beauty. Jesus pointed to the extravagant beauty that God clothed the wildflowers with and the abundant provision that God supplied the birds with as examples of how he wanted to take care of us. Remember this, Matthew 6? And Jesus said, hey, if God made the wildflowers that beautiful and they just get trampled on and God supplied that much for the birds, don't you think he cares more about you than he does birds and flowers? And if that's how he takes care of those things, how much more will he take care of you? Abundance. God, David in the book of Psalms celebrates how God brings forth good food from the earth. Wine that gladdens the heart of, of men. Or for you Baptists, just substitute sweet tea right there. Right? What you should see with that, okay? I don't get hung up with the wine part. What you see with that is God didn't create food just to keep us alive. He created that to make, created that to make us happy. And all God's people said, Amen. That's right. It's like Truett Cathy used to say, food is essential for life. Therefore, you should make it good. And God delights in that. In fact, John 2, the only time we see where Jesus supplies the, wedding for, or the wine for a wedding party, the people that tasted Jesus' wine that he made said it was the best they'd ever had. Now, Jesus could certainly have done the watered-down, cheap, and sufficient, wartime, three-buck-chuck kind of wine. But instead, he provided the good stuff because he knew his father made it. And he knew that by enjoying it, we would glorify God. In fact, you look throughout, throughout Scripture, God commands all kinds of feasts and parties and celebration where the best of the food and the best of the wine is supposed to be served. One in Nehemiah, I'm thinking about where the people, after some amazing thing happened, the people said, hey, 
we should say, we should honor God for the way that, 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 that he delivered us. We should do it by having a week-long fast. And all of a sudden, an emergency message comes down from heaven through Nehemiah and says, no, 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 don't fast. I want you to party for a solid week. I want you to eat the best of the food. I want you to drink the best of the wine. Because in doing that, you're going to celebrate my, my goodness. Jesus lived out these principles of abundance. In fact, Jesus' critics accused him of being a glutton and a drunk. Now, that was not true, of course. But the reason they said it was because evidently Jesus loved a good feast. In fact, biblical scholar Robert Karras points out that at just about every point in Luke's gospel, go back and look at it, just at every point in Luke's gospel, Jesus is either coming from a meal, at a meal, or going to a meal. That's a Savior worth following, amen? All right? Dr. Karras says you can literally eat your way through Luke's gospel. I'm happy to tell you this is one area of Christ-likeness I have already mastered, okay? I will often say, Lord, make me more like you, and then pass me the wings, all right? God loves it. He loves it when you bite into the succulent richness of a horseradish-crusted Pittsburgh-style prime rib, and every taste bud in your mouth just screams out hallelujah and thanksgiving to God. He loves it when you wake up in a hotel by the beach and the surf breeze blowing into your, your room and, and, and the gentle sounds of the waves. He glorified in the comforts you feel in a clean house on a soft bed with a well-manicured lawn. He even likes it when you enjoy the clothes that you're wearing or when you stare at wonder at the intricate you know, precision of the, of the timepiece that you are wearing on your arm. God gives us richly all things to enjoy, and he is glorified when we enjoy them. In fact, we see in Scripture that God blessed multiple people with great riches, riches that they were generous with, yes, but riches they also enjoy, people like Abraham. Job, at the beginning and the end of his life, in the middle he was pretty you know, hard up, but at the beginning and the end of it, he was really wealthy. Um, uh, uh, David, not even to mention Solomon, it's clear that some of Jesus' early disciples were people of substantial means. Some of, some of the Christians in Acts had large houses. The reason we know that is because they hosted early church gatherings. Paul would say in Philippians 4, a verse you may have never read this verse this way, but this is what it means. Paul says in Philippians 4, he says, I know how to, to be brought low and how to abound. I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger. I've learned the secret of living in abundance and in need. I can do all things. I can do both extremes through Christ who strengthens me. In other words, there are times where God pours out abundance on his people, and there's times where they go through a time of, of need. And Paul says a faithful Christian can live faithfully in either. Some Christians are good at doing one of those things, but not the other. It's like my friend Larry Osborne, who's a pastor, mentor, friend of mine. He says, you know, so J.D., when God Abrahams me, that is, blesses me with prosperity, I'll give him thanks and I'll enjoy it. And when he jobs me, that makes me lose everything, then I'll thank him just the same and I'll trust him and I'll enjoy my relationship to him. That's what Paul is saying in Philippians 4. Through Christ, I can be faithful in both. Now, I can hear some of you, some of you type A people or you're like me, you're like, wait a minute, J.D., I just can't help but think that by eating this nice meal, I'm depriving some poor kid of their provision. And honestly, I'm going to tell you again, that's a good question for you to ask. You probably don't need all that luxury in your life. Not everything in your life needs to be made out of gold. Right? Sometimes copper will do just fine, and sometimes you can store up that gold treasure and use it for the kingdom, and you can live on copper. But you should remember that Jesus taught us not to look at the world through the lens of scarcity, but look at the world through the lens of abundance. Our God is a God of such abundance that what you enjoy in one place doesn't automatically keep it from, from somebody else. 
I mean, this is a little childish, but just imagine if Jesus showed up by your bedside and he reached out and he handed you a $100 bill. And you're like, oh, Jesus, thank you for this $100 bill. And he says, yep, here's what I want you to do with it. And he gives you instructions to go out and take your family out and have a good time. And you're like, oh, no, I need to give this back into the mission. And Jesus says, no, 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 hold on, hold on. Okay, listen, I got plenty. I got my own mint. I can make all the money that I need. This is what I want you to do with that. If he did that, you would be able to enjoy that without feeling you were taking away anything from anybody else, right? Well, see, that's in part the way Jesus tells you to look at money. He's like, listen, it's not like it all depends on you. I'm a God of abundance. I'm a God who overflows with provision. So I need you to do what I'm telling you to do with this provision and not feel like the whole weight of everything depends on you. Now that's principle number two. God gives us richly all things to enjoy. Now hang on, okay? I know that somebody is going to YouTube clip what I just said. And they're going to just take that section and I'm going to be the next prosperity gospel heretic. That is one of seven principles. It's, one, it's a legitimate principle, but you've got to hold it in tension with the other six that I'm giving you, okay? Any one of these by himself is going to lead you to a bad place. All right, so let's go to number three. We see that God in Scripture gives excess to some and expects him to share it with others. That is why he gave excess to some. Stated in 2 Corinthians 8, Paul says that God often gives excess to some of us in the moment so we can take care of those in need. And the story he uses to illustrate this, Paul uses the story of the manna. 2 Corinthians chapter 8. At this present time, right now, your abundance is a supply for their need. Just like it was written in the book of Exodus. He who gathered much did not have too much, and he who gathered little had no lack. A reference to the story when they're in the wilderness and they don't have any food. So every morning God puts manna, this kind of bread from heaven, all over the ground. As far as they could see, right, left, front, behind them, nothing but manna. It was like God put Krispy Kreme donuts all over the ground and flipped the hot now sign on every single morning. And here was the deal. There was so much of it that everybody could eat their fill. But this was the, this was the deal. You could only get enough for that day. And if you tried to get enough for like the whole week, it would go bad, it would breed worms, and it would stink. So if you tried to stockpile it to make sure you had enough for tomorrow or the next day in case God forgot to put it out the next morning, it'd stink your whole house up. Thus, if you have extra, if you gather too much for the day, and your friend, your neighbor, doesn't have enough, what should you do with the extra? Well, you should hang on to it because it'll just make your house stink. And your friends in need, so you might as well go ahead and share it because tomorrow God's going to flip the hot now sign back on. There's going to be plenty. Just be honest, okay? Let's be honest. Just me and you, you and Uncle J.D. here, all right? How many of you, if you had been alive at the time, how many of you would have been manna stockpilers, at least at the beginning? You'd have been like, I got to put it in the manna freezer, right? You know, I got to put it in the manna cover. I got to, you know, want to make some, free some, make some manna cotti later or some banana bread or we're going to find something to do with this for later, right? Because you're like, well, what would happen if, if God doesn't show up, but according to Paul, hey, that's how you should think about your stuff now. God gives you excess in the present, not so you can save it up as if he's not going to be faithful in the future. He gives you excess in the present to share with those that are in need right now. Say that you're a parent, you've got a third grade child, third grade son, and you hear that at your son's school, there's a kid in his class that's super poor. Kid never even brings anything for lunch. He's so poor. And so so you're packing your kid's lunch that morning, and instead of putting one sandwich in, you put two sandwiches. And you give it to little Johnny to take, and you forget when you give it to him to tell him why you put the extra sandwich in there. Until lunchtime comes, and then you remember, oh, I forgot to tell little Johnny about the two sandwiches. So you get in your car, and you drive down to the school, and because you, you can go in and tell him. And right as you get there, you see little Johnny's out on the playground or wherever they're eating, and you notice that he's got the two sandwiches in his hand. 
and he looks kind of confused, and then he notices the, 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 the poorer child over here, and he goes over and hands the sandwich to the poorer child. What do you as a parent feel at that moment? Do you feel like, are you proud, or are you like, oh, kid's gonna be, my kid's going to grow up and be poor because he doesn't know how to save. Right? You're going to put him in a Dave Ramsey class immediately because he needs to know how to save for the future. No, you'd be proud because instinctively he knew what to do with the excess. In fact, if you saw him trying to say, if you saw him over there digging a little hole to try to bury the sandwich so that tomorrow he's got another one, you'd be like, what are you doing? I'm, I'm going to give you another sandwich tomorrow so the excess you have today is for the purpose of sharing with those that are in need around you. Because that's what Paul is saying about our excess provision right now. He's saying God gave us excess in the present to take care of the needs in the present. There are numerous places in the Bible that talk about our responsibility to the poor that are right in front of us. Proverbs 28, 27, those who close their eyes to the poor and walk on by, they will receive many curses. Those who give to the poor, they will lack nothing. Proverbs 3, 27, next verse. Um, Do not withhold good from those to whom it is due when it is in your power to act. When you see it and you've got the opportunity to meet the need, God holds you responsible for not meeting it. The book of James tells us in the New Testament in three different places that if we see a brother suffering or we see a need and we have the capacity to help them and we do not help them, James says you cannot possibly be a person who's been transformed by the gospel. Those of us with a lot should give freely to those with a little. It's why Paul says God gives us excess. In fact, Paul considered the sharing of his resources for the spread of the gospel to be like a debt that he owed. I showed you this as we studied through Romans 1. Paul says in Romans 1, I'm a debtor, both to Greeks and barbarians, both to the wise and the foolish. And when we got to that, I asked you in Romans 1, I'm like, how could Paul feel like he was in debt to a group of people he'd never even met? How could he possibly owe them something? And I answered that by saying, there's two ways to be in debt, right? One way of being in debt is the person could have loaned you something. The other way to be in debt is um, say, and here's the example I used, Say you were CEO of Feed the Children and somebody gave you a million dollar donation to Feed the Children. And you instead you put it in your bank account and said, I'm going to live off the interest of that or I'm going to upgrade my house a few times. Right? What would we say about you if you did that? We would say, well, you're not just a bad CEO, you're a thief. Because that money was not given to you for you, that money was given to you for them. You owe it to them. Paul said, the resources that God gave to me were not given to me for me. My time, my treasure, and my talents, I owe it to people who have never heard. And so I am in debt to them. That's why God gave me what he gave me in the present because of people who need Jesus today. God gives us access in the present to meet needs that are in front of us. That's not to say you don't save any of it. I'll get to that in just a second. But some of you need to ask. Here's a good question. Why did God bring you to this church at this time? This is a church that God has obviously given a mission to. Right? We've got a mission to plant a thousand churches. 260 of our members that are living overseas, 60 more in the pipeline right now. We live in one of the most strategic places in, North, in, in not just North Carolina, but in America, with 100,000 people. The population grows by 100,000 people every single year. We got to plant churches. We got to expand campuses. If we're even going to keep up with the population growth, God has a mission for us, and he brought you here at this time. And he brought you here, and he gave some of you access because He expects for you to meet the need that's right in front of you. That's principle number three. Principle number four. It can be wise to build wealth. Consider these very clear instructions in Proverbs. The crown of the wise, the glory of the wise is their wealth. It didn't say it was something to feel guilty about. 
It was the glory of the wise of the wealth. The plans of the diligent lead surely to abundance. Honor the Lord with your wealth, with the first fruits of all your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with sweet tea. Huh? Hashtag SBC president right there, okay? Um, well, what is it saying he'll do? But don't turn that into a metaphorical thing either. He's talking literally. God just loves it. He pours out and it's one of the signs that sometimes you're doing what you ought to be doing. How about this one? Go to the ant, old sluggard, and consider her ways. She prepares her bread in summer and gathers her food in the harvest. In other words, when she has opportunity, she saves. And she tucks it away because later, right, when it's winter comes, she's got it. How about this one? Look at this, Proverbs 13, 22. A good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children. In other words, a good man, a wise man, might leave an inheritance that blesses even his grandchildren. That's a pretty significant wad of cash. So clearly, God thinks it's wise to save even to invest. He commends it. He even rewards it. Now again, if you hold this principle alone and not in tension with the others, it's going to lead you to the hoarding of wealth, something Scripture clearly condemns. But nonetheless, the Bible indicates that we can and we should save responsibly. In fact, it commands us to do that. It's also worthy of note that saving money and building wealth can actually increase your ability to be generous later. One of the most basic principles of economics is that money creates money. Albert Einstein was once famously asked, what's the most powerful force in the universe? His response, he thought for a minute, compound interest. That's the most powerful force in the universe. Seems to be able to do what nothing else can do. In Jesus' parables, he commended wise investment. In the parable of the talents, he praises the guy who's given five talents and two talents, and the five turns it into ten, and the two turns it into four. He praises him and says, you did well. You took it, you multiplied it, now you've got even more to be generous with. Again, you've got to balance this with the other principles, but clearly saving and investing are part of a wise life. That brings up another question I get a lot, by the way. What do you do about generosity if you're in debt? Scripture says it's unwise to be in debt, right? So should you focus on paying off your debts? Is that where all your resources should go and you kind of punt generosity until later? The short answer to that question is yes and no, okay? Yes, Yes, you should get out of debt as quickly as possible, particularly if you've got unsecured or high interest loans like a credit card. When I say debt here, I'm not talking about things like a mortgage. Getting out of debt will increase your ability to be generous later because right now what you're handing in interest payments to American excess, you can instead divert to the kingdom of God. So yes, get out of debt. That's the yes part. No, no, the no part of the answer is I would never suggest cutting generous giving out of your life entirely. For example, I would never stop tithing no matter how much debt I was in. Why? Because generosity should always be a part of your spiritual life. Let me draw an analogy with your your physical body. If you're sick, your body diverts a lot of energy to fighting that infection. That's why you get tired. But it doesn't divert all your energy to fighting the infection. Usually you, you stay conscious and you can perform other bodily functions that you need to do. It's, I mean, if it's extreme, you might go into a coma, but for the most part, usually you, it, it maintains the health of the body, even while it fights the infection. Even when you are sick with debt, you shouldn't use all your financial resources to pay off that debt. You should use some of your money to be generous because generosity is an essential part of a healthy spiritual life at whatever stage you are, at whatever income level, whether you're in high school, college, whether you're a retiree, generosity is an essential part of a spiritual life. The Bible never teaches that we withhold giving until we are debt-free. Bottom line, you should always honor God with the first and the best, 
what we often hear called the tithe. Beyond that, I would suggest you listen to the Holy Spirit about when and how much to share with those in need. Because after all, it's his money, not yours. You're just the steward, he's the owner. So you should say, hey, God, here's my situation. What do you want me to do with my money when I got people and I got mission needs in front of me and and listen to his direction? You say, well, this is confusing. I'd really like to talk to somebody about this. Summitchurch.com slash stewardship. We got things like Financial Peace University that can really help you think wisely through these questions. Principle number five, principles number five, um, treasures in heaven are better than treasures on earth. That's the fifth principle in this matrix. Treasures in heaven are always better than treasures on earth. It's like we saw last weekend. You can't take any of your treasures with you, but you can send them on ahead. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew 6, what he said, don't store up treasures on earth because moths and rust are going to corrupt them. Instead, you should store up treasures in heaven because their moth and rust can't touch them. Having a lot of material wealth on earth, I showed you last weekend, is like possessing a bunch of Confederate money at the end of the Civil War. What would plain logic tell you to do if you got a bunch of Confederate money and you know the South's about to lose the war? Well, you know that all your money's about to be worthless, so plain logic tells you to trade in as much of it as you can for something you can actually keep. In the same way, Jesus says, all your stockpiled treasures here are about to be worthless. It's like Confederate money. All your resources, all your treasures here, like Confederate money. You can't take any of it with you, but you can send it on ahead. And when you realize this, you will stop asking, how much do I have to give? And you'll start asking, how much of this can I go ahead and transfer into eternity where I and others can enjoy it forever? We spent a lot of time on that one last week, so I'm going to just end it right there and go on to number six. Number six, he says, look to God, not money. Is your primary source of security and significance. We've seen this a lot the last couple weeks. A lot of people give money first place in their hearts because they look to money to do one of two things that they really ought to be finding in God. It's either significance or security, depending on your personality. For some, money is happiness, money is significance, money is status, money is creature comforts in the present. And so when they get money, they spend it. They're spenders. Brothers, money is the way to feel secure in the future. Those people are not spenders, they're savers. Like we saw in Matthew 6, Jesus tells both groups, the spenders and the savers, that they ought to find their significance and their security in God. Doesn't mean you don't ever spend anything or save anything, just that you look to God first and foremost as your security and significance, and therefore you don't have to hold your money so tightly, and you can obey God with it because he's your primary source for both of those things. And when you do that, what you'll find is that when you look at your budget, you'll start noticing that God, the kingdom of God, is getting the first place, the biggest portion in your spending and your saving. It means you'll start to set limits on both your spending and your saving so that you can invest in the kingdom of God. You will live sufficiently, we say, so that you can give extravagantly. Most of us want to switch that. You will, let me rephrase it. You will spend sufficiently so that you can give extravagantly. You will save sufficiently so that you can give extravagantly. Most of us will save extravagantly and give sufficiently, or will spend extravagantly and give sufficiently. And Jesus says, if the kingdom of God is first, you'll see that's reversed. You'll save, you'll spend sufficiently but you will give extravagantly. See, friends, this is not about paying the 10% God tax and then moving on. For some of you, when the offering bucket comes by, you throw in a 10 or a 20 spot and then you move on. I'm gonna go ahead and tell you right now, God doesn't want your lunch money. God does not want to be tipped. He wants to be worshiped as the first and best in your life. And that requires planning. It requires an intentional 
look at how you spend and how you save and say, I I want God to be first. I'm not just going to throw it in there when I feel moved because of the music or the sermon that I heard. Here's number seven, last one. Follow the Holy Spirit. If you grew up Baptist like I did, you're not super familiar with the Holy Spirit's leadership and things like this. Most of us Baptists, we're not quite sure what the Holy Spirit does. I often compared it to it's like our pituitary gland. I know it's in there. I'm not even sure exactly where to point, to be honest with you. I know it's in there somewhere, right? And I'm really grateful for it. I don't want to be without it, but I don't really relate to it, and I'm not exactly sure what it does. And that's how you feel about the Holy Spirit. Like, I know he's in there somewhere bouncing around, but I don't want to lose him, but I'm not quite sure what he does in my life. But see, in the New Testament, in the, New, in the book of Acts, they depended on the leadership of the Holy Spirit to show them what roles and sacrifice they were supposed to make. Because see, the mission is too big for any one purpose, person. And they needed the Holy Spirit to show them when and how to obey, when and how to sacrifice. I've told you, the Holy Spirit shows up 59 times in the book of Acts, 59. In 59 times, 36 of the 59, he is speaking. Now, I get it, I get it. The book of Acts was a special time. Right? There were some unique things happening. The apostles were writing the Bible. That's a special chapter of history. But you cannot convince me that the only book that we have that describes for us what it looks like to walk with the Spirit, you can't convince me that's filled with a bunch of stories of people whose experiences have nothing in common with us. This doesn't make sense. They depended on the leadership of the Holy Spirit. If you and I are going to do what we're supposed to do, it's going to be because we're very in touch and the Holy Spirit is speaking to us about what, what sacrifices we're supposed to make. Otherwise, you'll live overwhelmed and paralyzed like I did for a long time. Because the mission is it's just too big. There's, always, there's so much need right? It's like my friend Larry Osborne, who I already quoted before. He said this to me too. He said, J.D., you got to understand, not everything that comes from heaven has your name on it. Something does, and God will want you to sacrifice radically for that thing, but not everything that comes from heaven has your name on it, and there's a lot of needs that are really good that are not necessarily assigned to you. You got to depend on the leadership of the Holy Spirit. By the way, I read recently, the denomination that does the best job mobilizing its people for giving and going in mission. What denomination do you think that is? When I was reading the article, I was like, oh, it's gotta be Baptist. Because ain't nobody can do a guilt offering like a Baptist can do, right? Amen, right? And we talk about missions more than anybody else. (laughs) Article said, you might think it would be the Baptist. I'm like, I did think it was the Baptist. He said, but you would be wrong. The denomination does the best job is the Pentecostals, right? And some of you are like, yes, that's that's my heritage, right? Great, all right, so, he said, why are Pentecostals so effective? He said, because, he said, at Baptist churches, they talk about the weightiness of the task, and you just end up feeling crushed by the need. You should always be doing more, right? He said, at Pentecostal churches, they talk about the leadership of the Spirit. And the article said, evidently, being Spirit-driven is more motivating than being guilt-driven, because the Spirit will show you what you are supposed to do with what He gave to you. Now, I got, I got to emphasize If you follow this principle without the other six, it won't lead you to the right place. That only works when you've already got a heart that has been shaped by the gospel and is eager to give. Otherwise, you'll use this principle and say, well, I just never really felt anything, and so I just, you know, that's why I never really gave anything. A person who's been shaped by the gospel is eager to give, excited to give, looking for opportunities to give. And in that kind of heart that is looking earnestly for places to, to give and to share and to invest in God's kingdom, that's where the Spirit comes in and begins to speak. If you're the kind of person who sort of has money as your significance and your security, you'll just drown out the voice of the Spirit, and when he tries to speak, you will shut him up. 
You've got to have a heart that is shaped by these other six principles, and then the Spirit of God will begin to guide you. So that's them, friends. That's our seven principles. So you're sitting there, and here's what you're saying. You're like, Pastor J.D., I've been waiting patiently for the whole sermon. So what's the conclusion? How much am I supposed to give? Right? I, I can tell what some of you are thinking. You just want a law. You j- it would just be so much easier with a rule, a box to check. But like I told you at the beginning, I cannot give you one. Because the New Testament doesn't give one. True, in the Old Testament, the minimum was the tithe, the 10%. And that's a great place to start. But in the New Testament, it doesn't give you a rule. It gives you principles. Principles you're supposed to hold in tension. And instead, what the New Testament starts to do is focus on your heart. See, the primary questions that you're supposed to ask yourself in generosity is, hey, is God getting my first and my best? What's getting my first and my best? Is it saving? Is it spending? Or is it the kingdom of God? Here's the other question, second question. What does my money reveal about what I love most and trust most? What does just my spending reveal about what I love most, trust most? What does it reveal about what kingdom I'm actually living for, this one or that one? Here's the third question. Have I surrendered all my resources to the Holy Spirit and listened for his voice? Hey friend, have you ever said, hey, here's my house, here's my job, here's my savings account, my 401k or my cars, here's everything. What do you want with this? Show me, I just want to obey you. Maybe you don't have anything. Maybe you're at the beginning of your career and you say, God, whatever it is, I just want it all to belong to you. I, I, I can't play the Holy Spirit in your life. That's why I need you to take these seven principles. Hope you wrote them down. And I need you to go home and wrestle with them and listen for the voice of the Holy Spirit as, as he guides you. Let me close all this by giving, talking to three different groups of you real quick. First of all, there's some of you in here that I would call you faithful tithers. And since you were eight years old, you've been given 10% of everything you got. Hey, and that's awesome. That's a great place to start. But I'd say for some of you, you've never actually moved into the realm of Christ-like giver because you've looked at that like a God tax and then you've used the other 90% for what you wanted to do with it. My challenge for you is for you to take that 10% and leave it behind and for you to start to say, God, what represents my first and my best and what represents me using my resources for the world the way you use yours for me? Right? Take that step. Here's a second uh, group of you. There's some of you that have never really in, given in a substantial way to the kingdom of God. Right? And my challenge for you is to take that first step and start giving. Scripture calls you, Jesus calls you to a life of generosity and trust and joy. In fact, he promises that he will bless you in it. And, and I, know, I, know, I know you could abuse this. But some of you right now, when I talk about like giving the first 10% back to God, you just break out in sweats and you're going to have night terrors. Like we never afford that. Malachi 3.10, God says, trust me and test me and watch how I pour out abundance on you. It'll just overflow. That's what I'll be like. And you just got to trust God. It's going to be a major mile marker in your life. It's like a couple I've told you about. Um, David Jeremiah, pastor friend, told me. He said there's a couple of, uh, there was a couple in his church who came to him and they, 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 they were convicted. They want to start giving. And so they're like, Pastor Jeremiah, we want to give, but we just feel like we can't do it and make our, pay our bills. And Dr. Jeremiah said, well, I'll tell you what, why don't you write a check out for what 10% would be and give it to me. I'll put it in an envelope, put it in the front of my desk in my drawer, and I won't cash it till the end of the month. And if you come to me before the end of the month and you don't have enough money to make ends meet, I'll tear it up and give it back to you. And he said, is that, you want to do that? And they said, oh, that sounds reasonable. Dr. Jeremiah said, I looked at them and I said, shame on you because you just said you trust your pastor more than you trust God. Because that's what God promised. Test me 
and see if I don't make things work. Trust me by making it the first and the best. Here's a third group. There's a group of you in here that have gotten in the habit of throwing in a tip to God when you feel so moved. It might even be a generous tip, but I'm gonna tell you, this is the worst kind. If we're gonna be serious as disciples of Jesus, our generosity ought to be regular. It ought to be intentional. It ought to be planned. It ought to be structured in a way that our whole spending, saving, our whole budget structure is set up to declare that God is first. And if you wanna know how to get that started, if you don't know, if you want help with it, summitchurch.com slash stewardship. There's all kinds of resources and, and help for you. I'm gonna tell you, listen, God has got a life for you, a life of meaning and significance, a life where he gets you to invest your treasures in eternity. He has a plan for what he gave you, whether it's a little or a lot, and he wants you to be faithful in it. And that's where an exciting life starts. Here's what we're gonna do. Here's what we're gonna close this weekend. I'm gonna pray for us. I'm gonna pray that God will help you wrestle with these this week. And then we're going to call our ushers forward after that, and they're going to come, and at all of our campuses, they're, they're going to take our offering. This is a normal offering. Um, our first commitments were last weekend. A lot of you turned that in, and we'll uh, celebrate that in the, in the future here. But um, this is just going to be the way that we end our service. As always, I'll tell you, listen, if you're a guest, I'm not really, we don't take the offering for you. We're glad that you're here. In fact, we got a gift for you at our first-time guest tent. Um, for those of you that are, are part of the Summit family, this is part of our worship. So we're going to end by worshiping and giving to God. Um, just as a statement of our worship and trust in Him. So why don't we bow our heads and our ushers, will, they'll get into place and we'll take our offering. Father, thank you. Thank you for the unspeakable gift of Christ. Teach me, teach our congregation what it means to trust and walk with Jesus according to these seven principles. I ask that, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. As they're taking our offering, I was telling you last weekend, like I said, it was our first commitment weekend. And we had literally thousands of you that turned in a first time or first, uh, first commitment. Unfortunately, I don't have those numbers for you because it takes a while to get that tallied. But if you're like, hey, I missed last weekend or I wasn't ready last weekend, what do I do? You could certainly drop it in the offering whenever you wanted to, or you could just go to summitchurch.com and right there on the front of the webpage is a little thing that you could click that would direct you to be able to fill one out online. Um, we say, yes, if God has led you to be a part of this church, we'd love for you not just to be in the audience, but to be a part of the, the mission team, a part of engaging and moving forward. That's when what it means to be a disciple of Jesus, okay? Uh, so that's how you can respond to that, and we'll have more information on the days to come. Uh, I'd like for all of you at all of our campuses, why don't you stand to your feet? Um, we are going to depart from here, and you're going to go get hopped up on tryptophan and have a happy Thanksgiving, and it's going to be great. We're going to be back next weekend. I look forward to seeing all of you there, okay? But I want to remind you at all campuses as you're going, Summit family, you've been blessed to be a blessing. He has enriched you in every way to be generous in every way to bless others in the name of Jesus. Summit family, you are sent. <laughs>